you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis 48. The last chapters of Genesis not only summarize and bring to a close the story of Genesis, obviously from creation to Egypt, they summarize the story of all Scripture, right? While Evil is real and present. God intends all things for the good of achieving His purposes by keeping His promises, and God wins. That's the story. We begin our walk through Genesis, if you remember, on September 8th, 2019. After Corona, weather cancellations from time to time, we finally bring it to an end tonight. A year and a half, almost exactly, For the book of Genesis. That's not bad. That's not bad for 50 chapters. Um, We began in a garden and we end in Egypt, but with the future in clear view. God created the world with a plan already in his mind to reveal himself to his creation as a God of promise who will save his people and bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey Forever. So the last two central characters we've had in Genesis, Abraham's grandson Jacob and his son Joseph, both died desiring to be buried in that original promised land, or at least to see it, showing that they both believed God would fulfill that promise that he made, and in so doing, by that desire, remind their descendants to do the same. All the threads of the book And the key names come together in these last three chapters. The author of Genesis wanted to show Israel that because God is sovereign and faithful, His people can die in hope wherever they are, that He will fulfill His promise of land. And beloved, tonight, you and I live in that same span of tension between God's promise for a land and His promise of Fulfillment, And therefore, the goal of the text is the same for us tonight as it would have been for Israel. Yes, here and now, we still die. We still get buried in the earth. But we die with the hope that through Christ's atoning work, we will inherit the new creation. Because our God is sovereign and faithful, He can be trusted to fulfill His promise of a land for us. So let's pray and we'll walk through this together. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, once more, we thank you for this promise that you've made. Reveal it to us even more clearly tonight, Father, as we read. Write it on our hearts. Let us not forget you. Let us not forget your truth. Let us not abandon it on the way. Be with us and keep us. And please help me speak clearly concisely, truthfully tonight. And please help everyone to hear your word. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first part, Genesis chapter 48, verse 1, just the first stanza here. He says, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. Remember now, the author of Genesis didn't take any time telling us What the 17 years that Jacob spent in Israel or in Egypt were like. What's important is to get to the end and the last words of Jacob's life. After this, that little phrase in verse 1 sets the scene for the last three chapters of Genesis before it ends in chapter 50, verse 26. That's why we're looking at it as a a group. I don't want you to think I'm trying to rush Genesis. When, When you're preaching through narrative, when you get little headers you look for the next one before you'd cut off your sermon theoretically, right? When you, when you get that after this in Genesis 48, it, that carries you thematically to the end of the book. That's why we're looking at these last three together. There, there are no new beginnings, no new uh, kickoff phrases, if you will. Jacob is ill here. He's dying. And the first thing that happens in the final scene that is that Jacob adopts Joseph's two sons that he's had with um, the daughter of the priestess, or the priest of Egypt, uh, the, the daughter of On, I believe it was, uh, the two sons that he's had with her. Jacob adopts them as his own and blesses them. That's key. Because chapter 49 joins Ephraim and Manasseh then to the rest of Joseph's brothers 
as a part of the blessing to the tribes of Israel. Pick pick it up in the middle of verse 1. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Jacob has been through so much in his life. Few and hard, few and evil were the days of his sojourn. If you remember so much pain and suffering at one point, not long ago in the passage, he never thought he would see Joseph again. Now he's not able, he's able not just to see Joseph, but his two sons. And now if you'll notice, it's Jacob who can't see down later in verse 10, just like his father Isaac when he gave the blessing. But God has turned that evil for good. We're, we're, we're seeing hints at the end. The elder has served the younger. Jacob is dying in hope. And so after blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, he blesses Joseph. Pick it up in verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob is giving his blessing here, fully aware of the fact that in verses 17 through 20, he'll put the younger above the older. Because one day the blessing of God will be so evident that Ephraim and Manasseh will be used as the standard of God's blessing for fruitful descendants. Nothing is going to be normal for the descendants of Abraham and the bearers of the promise. Reuben and Simeon were called out back in verse 5 specifically because we're meant to see here they're being bypassed for this blessing. It's going to Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, his grandsons. They're giving a, Jacob is giving a double portion to Joseph. And so the sons of Joseph are grafted in. They become co-heirs with the other brothers. They're considered full sons with all the rights and privileges that come with that status. And beloved, do not forget this. Both of them are half Gentile. Both of them. They have an Egyptian mother. But God's declaration is what the scriptures are about, not DNA. Don't forget that or it will mess up everything you do with scripture. All right. God is bringing things together here. He's working out his plan and promise through this family, the family of believing Abraham. Look at verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And now with Jacob's remaining strength in chapter 49, he calls his own sons And blesses each one of them in turn. Pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, the firstborn, strong and dignified but unstable, as was shown when he slept with his father's wife Bilhah, back in chapter 35, verse 22. That comes back. Here, he will not have preeminence among his brothers. Simeon and Levi, they're mighty at warfare, right? But they shame their father when they avenge their sister Dinah. Therefore, Jacob basically wants nothing to do with them. Their tribe will be divided and scattered throughout Israel. Then you have Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. Benjamin. Benjamin are all given a blessing, right? But again... It's not the oldest son. We skipped over one. It's not the oldest son, but Judah, the younger son of Leah, that receives the greatest blessing among the brothers. Look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. That's how prosperous and fruitful it will be. And the day of his reign, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. From Judah's line will come whom? The great king David. But ultimately, the king of kings, Jesus Christ himself. So after blessing his sons, and we could, we could spend a lot of time on, on the words here, but we're, we're, we're trying to gather the, the theme of this whole section. After blessing his sons, Jacob's, uh, Jacob makes one final request. Let's pick it up in verse 29 of chapter 49. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now, notice how detailed his instructions are here. There's no mistaking at all where Jacob wants to be buried Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place, the one where they buried Abraham and Sarah and my parents Isaac and Rebekah. Right? There's no mistaking this. All those names are brought back in. All those stories and those threads come together. All that Jacob has said here reveals that faith in his covenant Lord is what's at work here. That's what's on his mind. Hebrews 11.21 would go on to say, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. That was done in faith. But so do his final instructions for burial reveal his faith in the promise of God. God had promised the land of Canaan to his grandfather Abraham, to his father Isaac. And remember, as Jacob is speaking, nobody's there from the family. It's just sitting up there. It's just land. It's been vacated. But God had promised it to his grandfather, to his father, and to him and to his descendants after him. Now, God is taking his time for sure. But Jacob is convinced that this promise will be kept one day. He absolutely believes it. And he wants to be a part of it. He wants to be in the land when it's fully given. But this command in the movement of the story creates a a dilemma for his sons. Canaan is far away. Remember, at least it's not close. Why not just bury Jacob in Egypt where they live? It's been 17 years. That way they won't offend Pharaoh. You probably don't want to do that. They could, if he's buried there, they could much more easily go see him. Um, why go through all this trouble? Jacob has been adamant. He had already made Joseph swear with an oath, remember, that he would bury him in the promised land. But now all of his sons have heard His last wishes. They're all there. They all know how important this was to their father. Egypt is not their home. Jacob never let Egypt become his home. Canaan is what was promised. And then as we read, Jacob dies. Joseph is heartbroken. Look at the first verse in chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Now, I know it's a strange thing to think about, but... In the heat of Egypt, the body would very quickly decompose. So despite his grief, Joseph has to get to work. He has to get a move on. Look at verse 2. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. We'll wait on that little nugget until we eventually get to Exodus. But And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Now, it was customary in Egypt to mourn the death of a pharaoh for 72 days. Jacob is mourned in Egypt as a king, just under the days you would mourn for pharaoh. But after all of that, how will Joseph get pharaoh to let him bury his father, not in Egypt, but in Canaan? So he's not just died there, but think of the the honor that's been paid to him, and now you're going to take him, you're going to remove him, hopefully. Egypt has been very good to Joseph and his family. Very good. 
will they now be offended? So in verses 4 to 5, Joseph doesn't go directly to Pharaoh to ask, but to the other high officials of the court to ask for him. And Joseph very prudently does not mention the negative comments, right? Do not bury me in Egypt. Carry me out of Egypt. Those words might be offensive. What's, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with Egypt? He simply quotes his father from 49.29, bury me with my fathers. And then Joseph promised to return to Egypt. Isn't that interesting? That has to be part of the deal. He can't stay. He has to come back. Let me please go up is what he says. Now that statement will eventually refer to the exodus and Israel's salvation from Egypt. And Jacob's insistence on being buried in Canaan, again, is an indication of home, of where Israel actually belongs but can't go yet. They can't stay there. And the procession that will accompany Jacob when he is taken back will most certainly foreshadow not just this nation's future but all of God's people's future. Look at verse 6 of chapter 50. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. That's insane. As well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. That little note there at the end is not a throwaway note. Even chariots and horsemen went up. What does that remind you of? That sounds like the Exodus. Only next time the chariots will be chasing the Israelites. Things change here, don't they? Fortunes change. But even the Canaanites themselves get involved in this procession. Look at verse 11. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. They noticed it. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Much of the known world took notice of this burial. Look at verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. How important is it to the author that we know the details of where Jacob was buried? After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Jacob's burial in this cave renewed the family's claim of the land that they had left behind when they went down to Egypt 17 years ago. And this was a pledge that they would one day return to occupy what had been bestowed to Abraham and Sarah, to Isaac and Rebekah, now to Jacob. But most of all, his burial in the promised land testified to Jacob's and Israel's faith that God would indeed fulfill his promise of giving them a land. Jacob died in hope and he was buried in hope. That God would give a homeland to his people. If you can remember, the burial accounts of Abraham and Isaac were very brief by comparison to Jacob's, believe it or not. You think the most would be spent on Abraham's, the most text it was not. The most text of the three patriarchs is spent on Jacob. Why? You read verses 7 through 9. Why is there all that detail about Jacob's burial? This was a supplanter. I mean, he's, he's one of the patriarchs, but... Wouldn't you make the biggest deal out of Abraham's? Apparently not. Because this is more than the description of a royal funeral, beloved. Here at the end of Genesis, the end of the beginning, think about the function of Genesis in the storyline of Scripture. Jacob is accompanied at his burial by a great congregation of the officials and elders of Egypt, including the great army of the Egyptians. The army is a part of this too. The story of Jacob's burial foreshadows the time when God will bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on the people of Israel. Ezekiel 39, 25. But in the New Testament, Jesus Christ will go one step further when he hears the Roman centurion's confession of Jesus' power in Matthew 8, 
8 through 11. Listen to his words. He says, truly I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west. A great procession, right? Many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jacob's huge procession with Egyptian officials and military men heading for the promised land foreshadows the last day when Jesus will return on the clouds of heaven and many will come from east and west to feast forever in God's great kingdom. Finally, the promise of land will be completely fulfilled, a peaceful home for his people, a place where they will hunger and thirst no more. Revelation seven sixteen. paradise will return to earth. Revelation 22, 1 through 5, people from every tribe and nation will eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the believing children of Israel in the kingdom of God. Revelation 7, 4 through 9. But of course, the brothers miss any significance whatsoever to what they're beholding. Guilt, you see, guilt, which leads to fear, had preoccupied the brothers, even in the midst of this great procession, this foreshadowing of the great day of fulfillment, and they couldn't enjoy it. They couldn't see it. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. If Joseph still holds a grudge, with Jacob dead, it might finally be open season. Maybe Joseph has just been biding his time waiting for 17 years under the cover of reconciliation. When my when, when our father is dead, you boys are going to get yours. Right? That's what they're worried about. Look at verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. That's interesting. Did he? No. You figure he would have told Joseph this. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Beloved, this is the moment where everything we've read in Genesis and everything is introduced to us finally comes home. Because if you think about it, here stands the world. And all mankind at the mercy of God, begging that now that all is said and done, that he won't hold us accountable for the past. Begging that he won't, we won't be held accountable for the fall in Eden. Begging to hear mercy from the brother we got killed, right? That God raised from the dead. Guilt. Is not just a matter of what Joseph would do to his brothers here at the end of Genesis. Guilt is a matter of what God will do to us. This is us in a sense. We are guilty people. We're guilty. That's what's at issue in the last chapter of the beginning of human history and the long fall further down ever since. But, you talk about foreshadowing the end of the story. As the brothers heard, let us hear the final word of God on the matter of our guilt in light of the one over us who now rules not just Egypt, but all nations. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Why did Joseph weep? When they said these things to him. Because they're scared of him after all this time. Joseph thought there had been reconciliation. He thought the past was the past. We don't read anywhere. Again, we don't read anywhere that Jacob told his sons to tell Joseph that. Again, Jacob could have very easily just told Joseph that when he was talking to him. By the way, just so we're clear, don't bring anything up again. right? Make sure you forgive your brothers of what they've done or for what they've done, what more could be done for these brothers to believe that all was well? Right? Think about everything he's given to them. Joseph had given them so much, and they still don't believe that there's been reconciliation. They still don't believe, in spite of everything Joseph has done, 
that everything's okay. And they'll do anything to appease him. They'll bow down again. They'll become his servants, his slaves. But Joseph didn't ask for any of that. He didn't require it. Beloved, when there has been true reconciliation, there is no need for groveling. If you want to please the one who pardoned you, you embrace the pardon. Now come back to Genesis for just a moment. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Right? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it, your evil, for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Twice he tells them, don't be afraid. He's just reiterating the same message he gave them in chapter 45. Right? The pardoning word never changes. You meant evil for me. Absolutely they did. Right? There's no denying that here. Joseph knew they had hated him. He knew they wanted him dead or forgotten and out of their lives. That's precisely what they wanted. They were horrible to him. They were guilty. And the fact that God was at work in their evil didn't make what they were doing good. It was evil. It was sin. Joseph, again, had grounds to punish them. But Joseph saw his brothers now in light of the fact that God's intentions to save people through their actions overrides their guilt and responsibility. Joseph saw them now only in light of God's intentions, of God's plan, of God's promise. You meant to kill. God meant to save. And so you became a means to the end, just as I was. God saved us all. So don't be afraid. I'll take care of you and I'll take care of your children. God is sovereign. That's the foundation of Genesis it's the foundation of creation. It's the foundation of the promise of salvation in light of the fall and the curse and death. In Romans 1, Paul revealed that in God's wrath against our suppression of the knowledge of his worth and his existence, as wrath, God has given people the ability to pursue what they desire, to have their own wills. That's part of the curse of God's wrath. We brag about it. I have free will. That's the curse. Right? That's the curse. That's God's wrath. God gave people the ability to make their own plans. But God is sovereign. Therefore, what are you finding? There is no evil plan that can prevail against God's. No word can undo God's promise. He is in control of the outcome of everything and everyone from the roll of dice to the reign of kings and empires, which means nothing has to go right from our side for God to keep his promise. For God to be able to work out his plan. Nothing has to go right from here. He's sovereign. It's his word that guarantees the accomplishment of his promise. All God's promises are dependent on are God's word. Beloved, in the midst of all the evil and chaos in our, in our world that flows out of people's intentions and people's plans, there is another plan. There is another intention at work. Someone else's will is operating for the achievement of his agenda and his is ultimate. Nothing can stop it from being accomplished. That is the note sounded at the end of Genesis. That's the book which revealed both a curse and a promise, right? 
That is the theology we're being taught here at the end of the beginning. God rules over the presence and the effects of both the promise and the curse. Yes, many are the plans in the mind of a man, Proverbs 19.21, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Every time. Forever. So when Paul writes thousands of years later in Romans 8 that for those who love God, all things work together for our good, we should know that may mean through evil. Right? Paul is just echoing Joseph here. Beloved, evil is not evidence that God has lost control. Right? It, it's, it's one of the means by which God is working things out for us. That's, that's been in the Bible since the beginning. Right? The book that told us about the fall and the curse, we've known since then, if we're listening, if we're reading, oh, that, that's right. He, people mean what they do for evil, but God means it for good and God wins. So that's, that's what creation is going to be like. Pick it up in verse 22 now. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also make here the son of Manasseh were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the first time, in the text at least, that Joseph spoke of the promise of the land. And the fact that those words are his last words give them even more significance. Israel doesn't belong in Egypt. God's people don't, God's people have a home in Canaan. Canaan is the land of God's promise. That doesn't just get shifted around, right? doesn't matter where they are. It matters where the promise promised they would be. But Israel will be in Egypt waiting for a long time. And things are going to get bad. And then they're going to get worse. Very worse. So they can't lose heart. The author here knows this. Whether it's as they were about to enter Canaan or whether they were in exile in Babylon. I think it's the former. I think Moses wrote it as they were getting ready to enter the promised land, but that, that's really neither here nor there relative to this point. The point here is that you can't lose heart because God is going to keep his promises. The promise will be kept because God is not just faithful. So he doesn't just mean to keep his word. He's not going to depart from it. He's sovereign, which means he will keep his word because he can Right Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. If the God who creates out of nothing is the one who will visit you, then a new beginning isn't just possible, it's probable. It's likely for Israel. But in the meantime, in the meantime, just like tonight, there is the curse. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis began in a beautiful paradise on earth for God's creatures and it ends with Joseph, a child of the promise, in a coffin, embalmed in pagan Egypt, waiting. Waiting for God to bring his people back to the promised land and one day to true paradise. Joseph's bones are going to have to wait and have been waiting for a long time. A long time. But as a gentle reminder of the promise again, in the movement of the story, when God finally visits Israel in Egypt to lead them out of slavery, we will read in Exodus thirteen nineteen that Moses took with him the bones of Joseph. 
Joshua 24.32 tells us later in Israel's history, these bones were buried at Shechem in the portion of ground that Jacob had bought from the children of Hamor. So Joseph was also buried in part of the promised land, legally owned by his ancestors. But here's the thing, beloved, they're still there. He's decaying, probably into oblivion by now. But the bones are still there. They're still there. Somewhere in Shechem, Joseph's remains still await the promise. He never got to have the land. But also as we speak tonight, beloved, something has happened. You see, the true seed of Abraham that was only in the ground for three days and three nights and didn't decay has come. And so tonight we have to ask, what will God's keeping of the promise of land look like now? Both for Joseph and us, Ephraim's and Manasseh's all beloved, grafted into this one vine, this one household, this one building. Are we that far removed from this story? Not just by time, but also by ethnicity. When you read the Bible, do you feel like you're the odd man out? Because you're not an ethnic Israelite? Beloved, there was a mystery woven into this story from the very beginning. Right? A great twist, if you will. Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, the mystery of Christ. Abraham's seed, by the way. That's who he is which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul is telling you the New Testament writers are the ones capable of explaining the Old Testament to us. What they tell us it means, that's what it means. Remember Luke 24, what was Jesus doing? Explaining the Bible to the disciples. This mystery is what? what was, what's the mystery of the Bible? Right? It, it's not like Shaggy and Scooby and there are clues. It's not that kind of mystery. It's, it's something hidden that God has now revealed. What was it? The mystery, please hear these words, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body. They are not a distinct body. They are members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Beloved, partakers of what promise? This promise. The promise that's been there from the very beginning and has been overseen by God every second since. We've been grafted into this promise by grace through faith in Abraham's seed, our Lord Jesus Christ, by the irrevocable word of our sovereign and faithful God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so today we are so much like Joseph and believing Israelites, waiting, waiting for God to come to us, whether we're in the ground or sitting here tonight. Fulfilling his promise of land, which is nothing less, beloved, than the restoration of paradise on earth. Hear this, please. God's people are no longer waiting for a strip of land in the Middle East that's no more than 56,000 square miles, the, 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 the size of New York and Vermont. How is God going to get sand like the sands on the seashore and stars as there are in the sky in 56,000 square miles of land. It was a picture. The promise is way bigger than that. Beloved, God's promise is global. It's cosmic. Did we listen to it when it was originally made? Did we let it shape our understanding of God's plan and promise all through the scripture, or have we tried to read back into it and redefine it with a promise that came 430 years after it to an ethnic people? We can trace the theme of God's people hoping in his fulfillment of the promise of land 
all through the scripture, from all of God's people. It doesn't matter if they were old covenant or new covenant. And it's always been a promise to give Eden back to us. That's why the Bible begins and ends in a garden. That's why the language of garden was in the original promise to Abraham. That's why Paul talks the way he does. Paul tries to tell them, you, you Galatian Christians and the false teachers here are making way too much of national Israel. You're trying to, to make this 430 year, you know, covenant that came 430 years later, the main one. It's not the main one. The main one is to Abraham. That's the one that interprets the Bible. God's paradise was lost. That's what was lost. Paradise. In Genesis 3, and our search to recover it began all the way back in Genesis 11. And that hope is solidified when God promises land, land to a man named Abraham. A land, by the way, watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord in Genesis 13.10. It is that same hope that passes on to Isaac and then to Jacob to Joseph, to Israel in Egypt, and later to Israel in exile, until finally, in the New Testament, the hope shifts in God's people, who, by the way, are one in Christ. Romans 9, 6 through 29, Galatians 3, 7, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, from the land of Canaan to a new heavens and a new earth. 2 Peter 3, 13, Revelation 2, 11, or 21, 1, sorry. What does Jesus promise the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, that Jewish man that was dying? What does Jesus promise him? Today, or one day, you'll be with me in paradise. That's not a nice word. It has biblical teeth. And this same Lord that was dying now ascended promises to everyone who conquers by faith in Revelation 2.7 that he will give them permission to do what? To eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Beloved, Jesus comes to finally fulfill the promise of paradise restored on the earth. Revelation 22.1-5 through 5, With God dwelling forever among his people, walking with them in the cool of the day, in Revelation 21.3, when Paul declares that by faith in Jesus Christ, all who believe are Abraham's seed, that means that all who believe are grafted into Abraham's promise. God meant to give us a home. But Adam and Eve couldn't hold on to Eden. Israel couldn't hold on to Canaan. What did Jesus very clearly tell them? Your house is forsaken. I'm giving it to somebody else. Jesus, however, can hold on to everything. And for all those who believe, they are promised what Eden and Canaan were pointing to. The new heavens and the new earth for all God's people. Believers from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Now one in Christ the true seed of Abraham, we are grafted in by virtue of our Joseph. So, beloved, don't lose hope tonight. Don't think you are getting a bum deal here because of when and where you, to whom you were born. And don't get scared that this truth forfeits anything that was ever promised to Israel. Beloved, read Romans Read Galatians and Hebrews. You say, I have read them. Read them again. And when you're done, read them again. Israel can't be replaced. You do not need to fear this. Israel can't be replaced. But Israel is a name, according to Paul, for God's people in the world. Those who are circumcised by faith in the heart, not in the flesh. Philippians 3, 3. Those words have meaning. Don't throw them away. Don't throw them away. They matter. What Israel truly is has been simply more clearly defined over time in light of God's means of progressive revelation. It's never been changed. The promises are not forfeit. Now that Christ has come, we understand that that's what the promise meant. That's what it was for. 
Nothing's ever been changed. The grafting in of Ephraim and Manasseh as though they are Jacob's sons makes them Abraham's descendants by God's declaration. Recipients of the same blessings as the ethnic brothers of Jacob and his wives. There's no difference. They're not a separate people. Prophesying from the very beginning that Gentiles are as much a part of God's people with all the blessings and promises given there too as the blood-born sons of Jacob himself, those that believe like Abraham. The men on whom the clearer revelation came. Remember that. The apostles of Jesus, they read the Old Testament through the lens of fulfillment in the New Testament. With the coming and exaltation of Jesus, they now had what was needed to understand God's plan from the very beginning correctly and clearly. That one promise of blessing to all nations through Abraham's one true seed, Jesus Christ, has always been the plan. Always. The nations have always been a part of the promise. Always. And Jesus is the one in whom the promise is kept. Which would be how those of us who are in him that aren't ethnic Jews get any of the blessing. Anyway, we're in Christ. We haven't replaced anybody. Christ is the fulfillment of everything. God doesn't lie. He's not changing what he's doing. He told you all the way back in the beginning, you're going to bless all the nations of the earth. I'm not going to like shoot out a different plan somewhere right in the middle. As like a parenthesis. What an insult to the church. We're a parenthesis? Beloved. That's a weird way for the Bible to talk about a parenthesis in God's plan. Please don't think that. Jesus is the one designed by God to both realize and reveal the full intention and scope of what was promised to Abraham. By the way, men don't like it when you insult their wives. Right? So maybe don't insult the bride of Jesus. She's not a parenthesis. She's not an afterthought. She's not a bookmark. She is the bride of Jesus Christ and will be forever. Jesus is the one designed by God to both realize and reveal the full intention and scope of what was promised to Abraham. And God raised him from the dead. He lives. He reigns to bring it about. So be it 22 years of waiting or 430 years or now 2,000 and counting, all God does is keep his promises. Sometimes we give up hope. People have always doubted that Jesus will return and this big promise will be kept. They've always doubted it. 2 Peter 3, 4, and 8, 9, and 13, right? They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, right? Keep that right there, mark that in your head. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But according to his promise, this is the one he's going to fulfill, by the way, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the promise to God's people who are one in Christ. And beloved, that promise stands. It always has. It always will. Because the God who made it is sovereign and faithful. Right, the evil that we see makes us doubt, makes us question the plan of God that he's using to bring it all about. That, that's, that's what Genesis was trying to tell us. So when paradise finally breaks on the children of God, and it will, please don't doubt him. When you hear the promise proclaimed over you, please don't say, but we killed you. We hated you. We rebelled against you. We tried to stamp your memory out of existence with our sin, and even now we can't get it right. Because he will say, I know you did. But we worked it out. 
So don't be afraid. I'll take care of you and your children forever. God is faithful and God fulfills his promises. That's the job of Genesis in the Bible. To show you and I from the outset the most valuable truth in the whole cosmos. Who God is and what his promises. The children of God will still die in this world. We'll still go to funerals. We'll still visit gravesides. Our bones still decay in this ground. But beloved, they decay in hope. They decay in hope. There's not a person you love that's a believer whose bones are decaying for nothing in the ground right now. Did you know that? Not one. And it doesn't matter where we're buried. He knows where to wake us up. And one day we'll be home and we'll be free. Finally. One day God will restore paradise on earth and you will be there to see it little flock you'll be there to see it and he will make because that's what he does all things new again Revelation 21 5 from creation forward humanity has been waiting and hoping for a home that's precisely what God has promised to give from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Israel to David to Jesus God has been Working to bring us back to paradise, to the eternal rest of the seventh day. And in Jesus, beloved, it is finished. It summarizes Genesis, but it also summarizes the whole story of Scripture and even human history itself. Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What others intend for evil since the serpent first did it. God intends for good. And God wins. Because our God is sovereign and faithful, he can be trusted to fulfill his promise of a new heavens and a new earth for us. One day, one day, the days of our sojourn will be over and we'll have a home. We'll have a home.